Once upon a time, there was a young girl named Amanda. And Amanda was an only child with a very wild imagination. And she was a really smart kid, but she had trouble focusing in school. She didn't have the best grades, like during math, she always wanted to draw things or write stories. And during English class or history, she was, she was like 10 years old. She was a, a 10 year old girl. So during like social studies history, she would want to write stories about anything else. And, and she had an amazing imagination. She would write stories about faraway lands with mythical creatures and dragons and things. And she had a really, really wild imagination. So one day she was home. She was a latchkey kid. And, you know, kids listening today probably don't know what that is. But, but back in the 80s, when this story takes place, Oftentimes, key was left for a child because both parents worked and they just sort of had to fend for themselves when they got home from school. And she was very responsible. Even though she had her head in the clouds, often, you know, she was she was someone who could be trusted home alone for a, for a short period of time. It was usually like an hour between getting dropped off by the school bus and the time her parents got home. So one day, she was home alone. She just gotten home from school. She had had sort of a rough ride on the school bus. Some of the, the kids were picking on her. She didn't have too many friends because, again, her head was always in a different place than everybody else's. She always felt a little bit different. When she got home, she got through the door. Her little dog named Barkley, who was named after the Sesame Street dog because when she was a little kid, she loved Sesame Street. Her little dog, Barkley, came up and greeted her, and she gave Barkley a, a milk bone dog treat, and uh, he went on his way. And she wanted to fix herself a little snack, so she walked into the kitchen, and as she passed by the oven, she heard a voice coming from inside the oven. When she opened the oven, there was this little man inside and he had on a tall pointy red cap and he said hey amanda do you know what will happen to your drawings if you put them in here and at first she was a little scared because why is there a man in her oven and she said how, how do you know my name and he said do you remember when you were a little girl you were about four or five years old and you had an imaginary friend named William? And she said, yeah. And he said, that's me. I'm your imaginary friend. And I've just been hanging out in here waiting to share what can happen when you put your drawings and your short stories in this oven. And she was like, well, what is, what is going to happen? So he said, okay. Go get your math notebook because I know that you drew that amazing castle today when you were supposed to be listening to Mrs. Polsky talk about algebra. And she said, okay. okay. So Amanda runs to her backpack and she unzips it as fast as she can. And she flips through the pages and she's so excited as she walks back to see William still standing there in the oven. And he said, okay, hand it to me and then crank the oven three times. And she said, well, 
isn't that gonna make you burn? And he said, normally it would, but not when I'm in here because it's the magic oven when I'm inside. So she put her drawing in there that had this beautiful castle that she had imagined going to and climbing. And then there was gonna be beautiful unicorns inside of the castle that she was gonna be able to ride all around all of the castle walls. So she put the magic notebook in the magic oven and cranked the oven three times. And she sat back and waited. And at first, nothing happened. And she thought, was that a dream? That was crazy. And then all of a sudden, she hears a gentle knocking from inside the oven. And as soon as she opens the door, it sucks her inside. And all of a sudden, she is in the castle that she drew. And she and William are standing on top of the biggest, tallest brick walls. And they're looking out over these beautiful green fields. And she hears something. And she said, William, what is that? And he said, those are your unicorns, Amanda. And she said, well, I have unicorns? And he said, absolutely. So she turns around and she runs to where the unicorns are neighing. And she and William get on the back of two different unicorns. And they start to gallop across that beautiful green countryside that she only saw in her mind. And they're running and they're laughing and the sky is so blue and they are having the best, best time. And she's like, oh my gosh, William, how am I going to get back to where I live? Aren't aren't my parents going to worry about me? And he said, don't worry, Amanda. This is where where we are. It's called your imagination. And we can go anywhere we want. And it doesn't matter because as soon as your parents get home, we'll know. So she says, okay, let's go down to that beautiful lake and go swimming. And he said, okay, no problem. So they take off. They're galloping on their unicorns and they get right up to the edge of the lake. And they stopped suddenly because in the middle of the lake was this gigantic sea monster. It looked like the Loch Ness Monster. The monster of legends. The legend of the Loch in Scotland. The mythical beast. Even though they weren't in Scotland, they were in Amanda's head somewhere, deep in her imagination. And her heart started racing. She was terrified. And William said, don't be afraid. This is Nessie's younger sister, Bessie, and she's totally cool, and she's here to take you on a tour of the underwater mysteries of your imagination. And Amanda was like, wait, what do you, how is that going to work? Like, do, do you have scuba gear for me? Because I'm, no, 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 William said, this is your imagination. You can breathe underwater just like a fish. You can do anything you want here. This is your world, and you're making the rules. And Bessie, from the distance, said, Yeah, Amanda, come on, get in the water. It feels great. Hop on my back. I'm going to take you for a little tour. So Amanda got off of her unicorn. She was nervous because she wasn't a great swimmer. And William picked up on that hesitation. 
And he said, Amanda, you're like an Olympic swimmer in your imagination. Just go for it. Just get in there. So she took a deep breath and she dove in and she swam and she swam and she wondered, could I really breathe underwater? But she was too nervous. She was holding her breath for the longest time. But finally she decided to just run with her imagination. This was like a dream, right? One of those dreams where you can fly, where you can breathe underwater. And she did, she took a breath and suddenly gills formed on either side of her neck. And she was swimming, she was swimming free in this gigantic lake. It was, a, it was a big, big, big lake. It was like one of the Great Lakes, like Superior. I think that's the biggest one because it's Superior. And she swam and swam and swam and she swam underneath Bessie and she climbed up on Bessie's back. She had the biggest smile on her face. And she said to Bessie, she said, okay, what now? And Bessie said, hold on tight, we're going under. So they dove under the water. And as they dove, Amanda was just so surprised at what she was seeing under the water. There were mermaids down there. There were fish that could talk to her. It was just like being in, in, a, in a movie that she had always dreamt of being a part of. The mermaids were playing soccer with their fins, and she thought, oh my gosh, I can probably be great at this because I have legs. She was watching them cook underwater, which was so funny because how can fire work underwater? In your imagination, anything is possible. So she is going with Bessie all around this incredible underwater just village in town. Everyone was so happy. And they already knew her. They all said, hey, Amanda, how's it going? And she was just so surprised that they knew her name. And they said, honey, we see you in your dreams every single night. And we are so excited when you come back to visit us. You're our best friend. We love you. We wouldn't exist without you. It's because of you and all of the things that live in your imagination that we get to be who we are. This just made Amanda feel so great because as a kid, when you're not really understood and when you don't have a lot of friends, it can get very lonely. And to realize that she had so many creatures and, and people and everything that knew her and loved her and understood her, it just made her heart feel so happy. So Bessie keeps swimming with her and they go up and they see this unbelievable rainbow forming above the lake. And Bessie said, do you want to go there too? And she said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, this is your imagination. We can fly. So Bessie takes off flying and Amanda is holding onto her back as tight as she can. And they fly up over the entire rainbow from end to end. Oh, Amanda is having the time of her life. And then she gets a little hungry because, you know, when we're playing really hard, sometimes we need a snack. So Bessie said, don't worry, William and the unicorns will take you back to the castle and you guys can enjoy a little snack. So as they get back on shore, she gets onto the unicorn with William. He's been, he's been waiting there very patiently on his unicorn and they gallop and gallop and gallop all the way back to the castle. And William says, well, what do you think you would like to have for a snack? And she said, you know, 
My grandmother used to make this really, really delicious peach cobbler in the summers, and I think that I would really like to have that for my snack, but we would need my oven for that. And William said, okay, well, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to imagine a peach cobbler cooking in the oven. I want you to close your eyes and imagine a peach cobbler. And so she did. She closed her eyes and he said, I want you to imagine that smell. And I want you to imagine your grandmother. And I want you to imagine you are home and you're about to dive in and take a delicious bite of that peach cobbler. So she closed her eyes. She took some breaths. She started to picture it all. And he said, now I want you to open your eyes. And she did. And when she opened her eyes, she was not in the castle anymore. She was home. And she heard the keys jingle in the lock of the front door. And it was her mother who had just come home from work. And she walked in to see Amanda eating a peach cobbler. And it was the most beautifully crafted peach cobbler. All the the lines on the pie crust were, were perfect. It smelled amazing. And she said, Amanda, I knew you were a very independent, responsible girl, but I had no idea you knew how to make a peach cobbler. And Amanda said, well, you can kind of make anything if you put your mind to it. And her mom just kind of laughed and Amanda cut a piece for her mom and they sat down and they shared some cobbler. And it was the most delicious cobbler she ever had. And the whole time they were enjoying their cobbler together, she just kept thinking back to her adventures with William and all the friends she made along the way. And all those characters who wouldn't exist without her and her imagination, who appreciated her and respected her. And she always kept that memory. So even on her toughest day at school, she would always have that and it got her through those tough times. And occasionally on a really bad day, she would just open the oven and see if William was there. Sometimes he was, sometimes he wasn't. But when he was, she would go on some adventures and sort of hit the reset button and feel good again. And she did this throughout all of her childhood until she got to the point in real life where she never lost her imagination, but she learned how to respect herself and to love herself and to be confident in herself even when maybe others didn't see it. And she always had her friend William to talk to if she ever had a bad day. The end. There's a neighborhood in New York City. It's called Washington Heights. There's mainly people that are descendants of Dominican Republic immigrants and Puerto Rican immigrants. And oh my goodness, is that such a colorful, colorful neighborhood. There's so much dancing. There's so much food. Everybody is happy. And everyone, is, seems, it just seems like they're all family. Well, a little nine-year-old girl named Sophia was growing up in Washington Heights. And she had always admired the salsa dancers and all of their beautiful moves and how much fun they seemed to have as they were dancing. And that's all she wanted, was to be a salsa dancer when she grew up. But their family didn't have a ton of money. 
And the salsa costumes, well, they kind of cost a lot of money. And she didn't have any clue how she was going to be able to compete in any of these competitions if she couldn't even wear the right clothing, if she couldn't even afford the dresses or the pants with the fringes on them. So Sophia decided to get creative. She did what she saw her mom do, which is figure it out, figure out a way to make it work. Her mom was a really strong woman and always worked really hard for her kids and so did her dad. And they always made sure that no matter what, they would figure it out. So Sophia thought, hmm, what could I possibly do that could help my family and help me to be able to afford my dream of being a salsa dancer? And she thought, well, I do know how to make cookies because my grandmother taught me how to make cookies. So maybe I could just go downstairs to the little bodega and buy some flour and some sugar and some eggs some chocolate chips because what cookie should be sold without chocolate chips so she went downstairs and she got all of the ingredients and she came back upstairs and started baking these cookies well she hadn't done it in a little while so her first batch got so burned that oh my goodness they could be used as hockey pucks well she certainly couldn't sell these nobody was gonna buy those to help pay for her salsa dream but Sophia decided you know what I can't give up just because I didn't succeed the first time doesn't mean that I'm not ever going to succeed. So she tried again. The second batch was mm, a little better, but she accidentally put way too much baking soda in them. So they kind of tasted like soap. So she said, okay, you know what? Let's try again. Because the only thing that you learn from is your failures. You don't really learn that much from when you succeed because you don't have any lessons that you can take away. This third time that she sat in to make the cookies, she made sure that she was paying very close attention to every single thing that she was putting into that batter. She made sure that the flour was the right amount, the butter was the right amount, the eggs, the baking soda, the salt, because my goodness, you don't want salty cookies. And then those chocolate chips. She would put them into her hands and she would roll them around slowly so she would make sure that they were all the same size. And then she put them on the cookie sheet and put them in the oven. And oh my goodness, they turned out perfect. And then she thought, okay, well, I've got my cookies. Now what? And then she remembered that Miss Patty down from the bodega sometimes lets people sell things at her store. So she wrapped up all the cookies in nice little pink packages and she took them down to Miss Patty and said, Miss Patty, is there any way that I could possibly sell my cookies here? Because I really want to buy some of those fancy pants, you know, the ones with the fringes on them that the really fancy salsa girls wear so that I could possibly do the salsa competitions. And Miss Patty said, oh honey, absolutely. So she let Sophia make a little stand and she wrote in her little handwriting, Sophia's cookies. Well, let me tell you, when the guys got out of work that afternoon and they stopped by the bodega to pick up a soda on the way home, they all saw Sophia's cookies and they sold out so fast. And Sophia was upstairs. She had no clue. And all of a sudden she's upstairs doing her tarea, her homework. She hears this frantic knock on the door. And she's like, oh no, what happened? And she runs to the door and it's Miss Patty. And Miss Patty said, Sophia, 
I don't know what you put in those cookies, but they are all gone, and I need more. We have a line around the corner. And Sophia thought, what? My cookies? Really? Oh my gosh. So she ran into the kitchen and she threw on her apron and she started to bake. And she baked and baked and baked and baked. And then before she knew it, she had $300 all from selling her cookies. All because she didn't give up on herself. And she went down to the salsa store and she was so excited and so ready to buy those pants. Well, guess what? When she went inside, Ricardo was working behind the store counter, and he said, Sophia, Miss Patty came in here, and she told me about what you were doing. There is no way I can let you pay for these pants. I'm going to give them to you for free. And honey, I want you to take that $300, and I want you to help your family, because we just love you so much, and we all believe in you. Sophia had tears in her eyes as she picked up those bright red fringy pants that she knew were just going to fly and float as she did all of her spins and turns. She thanked Ricardo and she said, you know what? I'm going to invite you to my first show and I'm going to give you tickets to the front row. And he said, I know you will, honey, and I will be right there. Sophia ran upstairs and she showed her mom and her dad and then she gave them the $300 that she had earned with her hard work through selling her cookies and they gave her a big hug And they said, sweetheart, we just know that you are going to be successful at whatever you put your mind to because you are so smart and you are so humble and you're so kind and we cannot wait to support you in all of your dreams. So that night, as Sophia was getting ready to go to bed, she thought to herself, I don't want this to be over. I think I could help a lot of people through my cookies. And so she kept baking. She kept baking and baking and baking when she wasn't at salsa class, of course. And before she knew it, she had started a little cookie company. Sophia's salsa cookies, they don't actually have salsa on them, started to be a huge hit in Washington Heights. And the years led to years, and Sophia's salsa cookies took off. And she ended up having a cookie empire that helped so many families in Washington Heights and helped kids be able to pursue their dreams through the proceeds. Sophia had no idea that day when she set out to make her first batch of cookies just to buy a pair of pants that she was going to be able to help so many families and so many kids just by not giving up. The end. Once upon a time, there was a young high school player named Ronnie Barbary. And Ronnie Barbary grew up in a small town in West Texas. And I don't know if you know, but West Texas is quite famous for football. And his lifelong dream was to be drafted by the Dallas Cowboys in the first round. The thing about Ronnie, though, was he wasn't your typical kid. He wasn't your typical athlete. He had a magnet in his knee, in his kneecap. And what had happened was he had had a knee injury as a young boy, and his parents sent him off to a doctor 
out of state that had been recommended to his parents. But that doctor wasn't very good. And the doctor was just supposed to fix the kneecap, possibly put a metal plate in it. But that doctor was all out of metal plates. And all he had were some kitchen magnets that were just laying around the doctor's office. The nurses and the staff would always, you know, post cute pictures of their families on the refrigerator and the in the common space in the in the lunchroom and everything. And so there were always magnets everywhere. So he found like a he found like a Hello Kitty magnet on the refrigerator because you know, times were, were lean at this particular doctor's office. He was out of network. And if you know, sometimes it's, it's hit or miss. It's, you know, you're, you're rolling the dice, right? So he just, he worked with what he had. You know, there were times when, you know, folks came in and, and they needed a cast. And if he didn't have a cast, he would just take, you know, an old muffler from, from the junkyard and he would fashion a splint out of an old muffler and he would he would melt the, the metal together and, and solder it and make it real sturdy though. He would make it real, real sturdy. He would send his patients on their way. And uh, you know, he would put some padding, you know, in this inside of the, the muffler, you know, because that can be kind of abrasive if a person puts a just a muffler on their leg. I don't know if you've ever put a muffler on your leg, but it could chafe. It could cut the skin. So he would, uh, he didn't have anything medically sanctioned in his office, so he would often use leftover rug clippings because they were soft, and he would just put kind of a lining inside the muffler, and he would, he would put that cast on. But anyway, I'm digressing a bit and going off track. When young Ronnie came to see Dr. Clover, that was his name, Dr. Clover, Francis Clover, Dr. Clover said, well... Son, I know you are a young, aspiring football player. You've got a lot of athletic talent, and you need this kneecap fixed up. But it's all busted up, so I don't have what we would traditionally put in your knee, which would be some sort of medically sanctioned metal piece. So we're going to use this magnet from the back of the Hello Kitty magnet that Jackie, my nurse, had uh, fixed up her family portrait on the refrigerator in the break room and uh, I got her a new one it's it's all it's all good so we're gonna put this metal magnet we're gonna put this magnet and that's gonna replace your kneecap so Dr. Clover did the surgery put in that magnetic kneecap and sent Ronnie on his way ready for August tryouts for the high school football team so Ronnie with this Hello Kitty magnet in his knee was understandably nervous for these tryouts, right? Not just because they were tryouts for the varsity football team in West Texas, but also because this hillbilly orthopod had admitted to him that he was going to have subpar parts, loose Magnets of a Hello Kitty variety, by the way. Not even like Stretch Armstrong or like Spider-Man, but like Hello Kitty. I didn't even know there was a Hello Kitty, a Sanrio, if you were, if you will, outlet in the state of Texas. So Jackie had like 
gotten this particular Hello Kitty magnet from like her family who lived in Minnesota near the Mall of America where there's a wide variety of kitsch magnets available because I don't think they mess with Hello Kitty in West Texas. But again, that's beside the point. So all of these thoughts, which are many, are running through poor Ronnie's brain. And all Ronnie wants to do is like run a go route, you know? Because he didn't really want to be a quarterback because that's kind of that's kind of basic, right? Like Ronnie, when you have a name like Ronnie Barbary, you think, ah, that's a great... That's a great quarterback name, but also a quarterback in West Texas, it's a lot of pressure. And if his family didn't have the money to send him to an MD who could put a properly medically sanctioned piece in his knee, they certainly weren't going to send him to a therapist to deal with all of the mental pressure of being a Jason Street-like quarterback in this Friday Night Lights town. So he was like, all right, what can I be that's exciting, but also not too much of a stretch? And he was like, I know, I'll be a slot receiver. And so he was stretching out his knee, thinking about all of the short to intermediate targets that he was hoping to soak up. And his knee started to pull funny. And he realized that it was like pulling him towards the whiteboard that the coaches were using in the sidelines. And he was like, oh no, oh my God, like my knee is magnetic. And now I can't control it because the forces of gravity or whatever they're called, because he went to school in West Texas, it's public school, we know what the funding is like. I, I just can't, I can't do it. And then this kid, this Ronnie Barbary, he was like, I gotta get creative. What are the best slot receivers? What are the best athletes? What are the best performers of any craft? The creative. And so he just figured out how to juke better than any other slot receiver on the field. And wouldn't you know it, as he is out there warming up, running routes, now he's in drills, now he's in the tryouts, and they are asking him to like run the three cone, go ahead and run routes, catch passes from the quarterbacks who are trying out. And they're all named like Biff and Bart and Tex and Walker. And he's catching all of them. And he's also starting to like catch other stuff to his knee. Like there are items that are now like, like attaching to his knee. And yet his thigh muscle is growing with strength at every rep because it's compensating for the amount of weight that is now on his knee. But mentally, he is working through this physical pain and instead building the most Channing Tatum-like quads that any teenager in West Texas could ever imagine. But the problem was his quads got so big. Well, one of them in particular the one with the Hello Kitty magnet in it, he couldn't ever find the right pants to wear, right? Because his quads were two different sizes. The one leg with the magnet in it, that was obviously the bigger quad. The other leg, it got bigger because it needed to keep up with the magnet leg, but it did not keep the same pace because it was not carrying the same weight. And the leg with the magnet in it was his right leg and because it was heavier 
he could only make right turns. He could only do in routes if he was lined up on the left. He could only do slants from the left because he could only go right because that leg just kept dragging him. And the defenses caught on to this. So they were covering everything. They were they were jumping past routes. They, they knew his game. Like, it, it worked for a little bit. And he was a big sensation for a couple games. And he had them all fooled. But they caught on pretty quickly. And he just wasn't playing as well. So he went to his trainer and he said, Trainer Dave, because that was his name, Trainer Dave. He said, Trainer Dave, what's going on? I I don't know how to fix this. I'm, they're jumping all my routes. They know exactly when I'm going to zig, when I'm going to zag. He's like, well, let me look at your your quads. And so he did. And he said, well, that one, the right one is very Channing Tatum-like. And the left one is, uh, is very Zach Braff-like. And you can't have a Channing Tatum quad and a Zach Braff quad on the same body it makes things all out of whack we got to get you symmetrically in the Channing Tatum category and he said well is that going to solve my problems he's like yeah I mean you do have a hello kitty magnet in your knee so it's not going to solve all your problems but I think this will help you on the field so they worked real hard to get that left leg in shape they did he started playing better they started mixing up the routes a little bit, confusing the defenses. And eventually, the team got to the playoffs. They won state. And in the process, Ronnie realized that the pants that he was supposed to wear, his uniform, was not meant for people who were not... They were ableist, in fact. I mean... What, what if you have this sort of incongruence in your physical form? Like, how are you? So, because what he had to do, obviously, was his, his parents had to buy him two different sized pants and sew them together because he wore a larger size on the Hello Kitty magnet knee side than he did on the other side. And while trainer Dave helped him, I mean, this kid never missed leg day. He had to. Absolutely. He had to make sure that the squats were deep and regular and without exception. But it kind of created inspiration in an unexpected way because he was like, well, I don't, my, my parents are like sitting here spending all of this money at like Hanes putting these pants together. And my mom is like, her eyesight is failing because she's trying to make the stitches all uniform because everyone's uniforms have to match everything has to look the same there are very strict rules uniform policies are very by the book in west texas and so they're spending all this money on lycra like how much can lycra be and so the family was like well what about people who aren't fully symmetrical is anyone actually symmetrical i hear that that's a myth i don't know and so they came up with a whole line of clothing, not just for young athletes, but for people who enjoy anything, just like wearing clothes so you don't get arrested in public. And um, he decided to call it Skies Out, Thighs Out, and it created a giant empire. And he lived happily ever after. The end. You know, 
Hook and ladder is generally believed to be a sports term, but there is a very unique group of firefighters who have reclaimed the phrase hook and ladder for their own purposes. And let's be honest, if we're talking about heroes, while athletes certainly get that billing because of the enormous amount of money that they make and the influence that they have via a giant platform and the celebrities that they hang out with. If we're really talking about heroes, there are no bigger heroes than firefighters. I mean, these are men and women who risk their lives to not just like, oh, I'm going to save somebody, but to like put out one of the four wonders of the world. And also like breathe smoke, like a dragon, which is pretty impressive. So there was this group of firefighters and they existed in Montana. Montana, if you don't know, has a lot of brush fire potential. There's not a lot of population, but there's a lot of land. And once that land catches fire, the whole thing can go up in smoke. And these firefighters were all retired college athletes who had giant aspirations to play at a pro level in their various disciplines. But some of them just weren't good enough. Some weren't tall enough. Some of them had physical maladies that they had gotten over the course of their college careers. And so they had all sort of met online in these chat groups. It was like Reddit, but without the hate. And they had all kind of talked about how you know, they were really like upset about the fact that they couldn't pursue this dream, which is massive. I mean, think about since you're a little kid focusing on just one thing and being told by all of the adults around you that it is your destiny and you are to step into it and work hard for it and be disciplined for it. And then something arises, whether it's, I don't know, your feet are too big, your arms are too long, or you bust up your ankle and just can't run as quickly. And so the adrenaline from that competitive spirit needs to go someplace and where better to put it than like in a burning building with like cats and children. I mean, with cats and children, who doesn't want to save kittens and babies? Like that's a full dopamine rush, saving the most vulnerable among us. And so they were all talking in these various chat rooms about how they could turn their misfortune into a positive while also helping people along the way. And they decided to all meet in Montana because of the, well, I mean, because like there's horses and just like cool masculine stuff there. Like who doesn't want to ride horses and like wear chaps and cowboy hats, cowgirl hats, like all of it is just very, who doesn't want a horse? Everybody, everybody wants to horse. Everybody wants to gallop. Everybody wants to canter. We all want a horse. And if we can horse in big sky, it's called big sky country. The sky is like the biggest thing ever. And this place has it bigger than anybody else. And so they were like, we're going to, we're going to meet in big sky and we're going to meet in Montana and then we're going to get together and we're going to make a plan for this hook and ladder 
firefighter squad, battalion even. I don't even know what battalion means. They didn't either, but they knew that it was a word that firefighters used to convey community, unity, and just like winningness, just savingness. And so they did meet. It was actually where they met was kind of near where Kanye lives, but they only knew that because Kanye's compound has music coming from it all the time and otherwise everything in Montana is very quiet so they like drove past you know you've drove you've driven past right like that one house in the neighborhood that just has like like, constant thumping music you're like who lives there why do they think they're so important that they can listen to music loud well it's Kanye's house so like he just does what he wants because he's got the capital so anyway they knew it was near Kanye's house so they knew that it was obviously like a well sought after the highly prestigious area and they all met at this cabin and so the pleasantries at first it was a little awkward right because they're all like going around like what what did you play what sport was yours what was your like well how did you fail at your childhood dream let's talk through it let's you know make let's work through these feelings and then once they kind of got to know each other there was one guy named stan he was kind of the ringleader and stan was just like all right like let's all stand up say hi my name is i played x and i would like to be y right and so stan went first stan was a fencer he was a little bit different than the rest of the of the crew most of them were like baseball players, football players, but but Stan was a fencer because he had learned what well, his parents had learned that fencing and male, male cheerleading offered the highest college scholarships for young boys. And so he was like, well, I, I want to go to Stanford. I'm also baseball at Stanford, football at Stanford, but like fencing at Stanford. If I can go to Stanford and be an athlete at Stanford and it be free on guard, friends, let's go. And so he stood up and said, I'm Stan. I was a fencer until I took a mighty blow in the collarbone. And it just like went right, you know, like that little divot in your collarbone. Somebody missed and his rapier went right into that soft, tender muscle. And so Stan, as a result of that, had one shoulder that was like a little closer to his ear than the other one. It was like he was constantly tense, except lopsidedly so. But he was still really strong. He was really, really smart. And he had strategic ability, like a fencer would, right? Like he could survey an area and know exactly where he needed to focus in order to win a match, which is key if you're a firefighter. Because if you're a firefighter, you need to look at everything and be like, you don't just run into a blaze head first. You think like, no, if this floor falls, I can't be standing under it. In fact, I need to go through the kitchen up to the living room, around the spiral staircase into the kids' room and down, you know, the back hallway in order to save the kittens that are in the mudroom. He had brain for that because of fencing. So he got up and he announced himself and decided to tell everyone and share with everyone what his special skill was. And that really made, it broke the ice, right? Like everybody was like, okay, like we've done the chat room thing. We've gotten to Montana. We passed Kanye's house. Now we can all share 
our stories and our futures together. So this woman named Marcia stood up and Marcia was an equestrian, which I mean, let's be honest, she was the one who was like really pushing hard for Montana because equestrian. She knew how to horse super well. And so she stood up and she was telling her equestrian story. And it was like, it was pretty on, it was basic, to be honest. Like she got thrown from the horse and heard her, you know, C3 or C4. And so her back was kind of wonky. There was nothing really special about her story other than the fact that she horsed and they were in Montana and none of these other athletes had equestrian ability. But because of that, she had an incredible ability to coax animals who were afraid. She could speak to the animals. That meant that she was excellent with the fire dogs. They would come to her immediately. They'd follow her every command. She would train them to be the most obedient. And also in high pressure situations, when you're going to, f- to save the kittens that are in the mud room, she, her energy, even underneath all of that gear, right? Like they couldn't see that she was this petite woman who rode horses regularly, but they would sense, they would smell her animal friendly pheromones and she would coax them out of the corners that they were shivering in and be able to then, you know, shove them into her giant uniform pants and her coat and stuff. And or or frankly, because I mean, like how much does like a dachshund weigh? Like 11 pounds? Like that's fine. She could like toss that at one of her colleagues and he would be able to rush out and save the animal. So like this animal husbandry thing that she had going on as a result of her experience as a equestrian or slash horser was particularly useful. But those two were like the main inspo for the whole group. But my favorite and nobody really knows about this guy. He's always, he's like flown under the radar for quite a bit. He stood up and he was a track athlete. And so you're like, okay, you ran track. That must mean that you are really, really fast. And so that you can run into a burning building and run right back out like the flash. But nah, he had incredible lung capacity. So like smoke was not a thing for this guy. He had so much oxygen regulation in his chest that he would like one, two, three, take a giant gulp of air, suck it in, and he could hold his breath and not inhale the noxious fumes, the smoke, the thickness that was billowing from various parts of the building. But basically... I mean, he was like basically Aquaman, but in a fire because he was holding his breath so much. And that guy didn't really talk a whole lot. And he didn't need to because he just stood up and said like, yo, I'm Roy and I can hold my breath for seven minutes. And that's impossible, but not for Roy because Roy was this incredible cross-country runner, but he had really short legs. And so he had to work double time, which is why the endurance of his chest was all the better. He was never ever gonna like be the fastest or go the furthest because he was like I don't know like five six but because he trained his lungs to hold his breath for so long he could go into a building save like four whole humans run out and finally exhale and so between these three Roy and Marsha and Stan the strategy the animal coaxing and the breath holding they were like a dream team of firefighting experts dubbed 
the hook and ladder crew, saving lives one at a time. The end.